What's going on, everybody? It's your boy Chaz C. No Roper, and you are tuned in to Amplifier Community Connection Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We are here today with the Milwaukee legend, and this brother is legendary. He was known to be legendary when we was younger for basketball, right? Man had a jumper. He was Steph Curry before Steph Curry. I'm just telling you, we both was about 50 pounds lighter, both of us, because we went to high school together. But uh, he was Steph Curry before Steph Curry existed. If you needed somebody to hit a J, you hit it, hit Brie Love, either top of the key or the corner. It was Cash Money Records before Baby Now. You hear what I'm saying? So this episode is the art of negotiating. And Mr. Mario Brie Love is not only a father, husband, a son, a great best friend, but the man is an attorney at law. Started his career uh, working for Troutman and Sanders in Atlanta, Georgia. But he said he don't want to work for nobody. So he going to do what people that don't want to work for nobody do. Not quit. Start his own thing. He is now the CEO and has been for, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years now of Bree Love Law Firm, the Bree Love Law Firm. So if you don't mind, help me welcome Mr. Attorney Mario Bree Love. Thank you, thank you. Bree, now I call him Bree, so, but I'm, I'm, I'm gonna try to do the attorney thing. This is my boy, we go back like four flat tires. We used to ride in my raggedy car at the Rufus King High School up and down Capitol Drive together when we were 16 years old. And then my car broke down. Then we used to ride his Nissan Sentra? Nissan Sentra. Sentra. To, to, 1989, <laughs> yeah. two door. Yeah, so we go back a long way. Matter of fact, deck. He, was the ba- he was the best man in my wedding as well. So you know this is my boy right here. So, Bree, man, let's, let's take a walk, man. Uh, let's take a walk to young Mario, man. Middle school Mario. What, what middle school you went to, Bree? Morris. Morris Middle School. Yeah. I heard it's not a middle school anymore. Yeah, it's, they, 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 they changed a lot of things. Right, I went to Stoyben. Right. It's not a middle school anymore either. Yeah. Morris Middle School, man. The young, young Bree loved, had hoop dreams back then. Absolutely, absolutely, man. So, I, you know, I love basketball because my father was a, was a he's, my father's here today. And you know, he's a sale. He's a great basketball player. Grew up in Akron, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, was a star high school basketball player. Played at the University of Iowa, um, where he was one of the, I think the first person in his family to go to college. And so um, I looked at basketball not only as some fun and something I enjoyed, you know, playing in the playgrounds in Milwaukee, but also as a vehicle that I could use to potentially go to college and mm-hmm. and, and better myself the way that the way that my father did. And so um, you know, Milwaukee's a hoop city. So Facts. Um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't hard to get out there and play. And, you know, I played on the playgrounds, spent a lot of time at the Levon Way Boys and Girls Club. L beats the L. Um, I think my father put me in there before I was even five years old. I wasn't even supposed to be in the boys club yet, <laughs> but he dropped me off about four years old. And, and I think he told him I was five. Um, but, um, yeah, man, it was, uh, you know, growing up in Milwaukee, man, and playing basketball on the playgrounds and at the club, man, it definitely shaped a lot of who I am today. Word, word, man. Yeah, I agree with that, man, because you, since I've known you, you always been a teen guy, man. You've always been uh, uh, advocating for others as well. So f- for you to be what you are in life today is no surprise because you continue to advocate for others. So it makes it all, it all lines up from when we were shorties to now, man, to see what you, what you got going on. So now we, you, 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 lead, you, you graduate middle school, you shoot to a, high, a prominent high school here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where a lot of legends went, man. We had a lot of legendary people that went to this high school, Rufus King High School. I know one legendary person that went there, me, by the way, shameless plug. Uh, we went to King together. We met in freshman year. 
if, if freshman um, basketball trials, they were good. I was an athlete. You get what I'm saying? I was just a pure athlete, but they were actually good at basketball. I was like the Dennis Rodman of the basketball team. You get what I'm saying? Hustle, outrun everybody, but they was cold. I just was out there. I was a base. I was the state of Wisconsin best baseball player, but I played basketball because all my partners played basketball. So I was just an athlete. But him, Biaya, uh, QP, they were all for real basketball players. I just was in the house to kick it with my boys. You know what I'm saying? Um, so you went to King, man. We, we went to King. And let's talk about some of the Rufus King high school years, man. I, I, I say a lot of our, uh, who we are as men, was shaped right there at King because we were um, very studious, but we were cool at the same time. See, back then you could do all your homework, you can get 4.0s, but you could still be cool. It ain't, I, don't, I don't think it's like that anymore. If you, if you get high grades and stuff, they talk about you and that. But we was, we was the cool kid. We was the star athletes. We was the 4.0 students and all that. And we, we enjoyed ourselves, man. So let's talk about the King days, man. What, what, when I say Rufus King, what, what comes to your mind, bro? Balance. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think it's where you learn. Of course, I learned how to grow into a young man and become a man, in, partly in high school. But it's about learning balance. It's about learning balancing um, being an athlete, uh, being a good student, or trying to be a good student, um, being a good person in the community, and being a good friend—you know what I'm saying—and so it teaches you. It taught me balance, and which helped me a lot moving forward. Um, you know, because playing playing basketball, Rufus King was was demanding. Yes. Um, because of the because of the nature of the program and the success that the program had at the time. Um, it was demanding, you know, and so, um, and then Rufus King being a college-bound school, uh, us being in, you know, IB classes and mm -hmm. things of that nature, you know, it was nothing that, you know, you go to basketball practice for two hours, um, work out early in the morning before school, go to school, go to basketball practice for a couple hours, and then go home and do three hours of homework. Work. And then lay it down and get back up in the morning and do the same thing. So it taught you a balance and taught you a work ethic. Um, but at the same time, you know, it was it was a social place, you know, nice. you know, and so you had friends and things of that nature. And, and uh, so when I think of that, I think of balance. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it was a it was a perfect place, especially at that point in my life. Um, and it was kind of an extension of Morris because, mm -hmm. you know, those being two of the stronger academic schools in the public school system, system yeah. at the time. Um, so I was fortunate enough to be able to to go to King. My, my older sister went to King. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, and she had a you know pretty good experience there as well, a different experience, but a, a good one in terms of education. And so, man, it was you know a lot of that, a lot of what I'm able to do now is from that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I've always been a, a big advocate of this public school system mm -hmm. and and supporting public schools and funding them and making sure that they have the resources they need because you know I was a product of public school yep. and. When I went on to college and law school and, and went to practice law, yeah, I went to, I've been around a lot of people that went to private schools and mm -hmm. charter schools and homeschooled. Um, but man, I wouldn't, you know, in terms of understanding balance in life, I wouldn't trade in my public school education for anything. And, and obviously King was a big part of that. Yeah, I, I agree 100%, man. It, it, uh, it definitely meant balance to me because I was 
you, you guys were like that in basketball. I was like that in baseball. And we, we were all, all of us would be there early in the mornings at 6 o'clock. Gal would open the gym for us. He, he made us go to the gym and work out. And y'all hooped in the mornings. Uh, and go to the, used to the pick me room. up to go. Uh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Then they used to have us. We were there early in the mornings doing the same thing. So it didn't. So Still when it was dark out. It's dark as a, super dark, especially in the wintertime. It was dark when we got there, and it was dark when we left. Dark and cold. Cold. So, it, but it did teach us a, a, a kind of, I like to say, hustle back then because we none of us did have bad grades. So we was getting the homework done, but we we all were great athletes. I mean, y'all went to state what every year we was there just about. I think y'all won three out of four years or something like that. Three out of yeah, three out of four. We went up state three out of four. Yeah, we won my junior year. Yeah. So yeah, we we stayed up state, and you know so. That right there just shows that it could be done if it is funded correctly. Because back when we were in public school, it was funded correctly. We did, we we had ample amount of books. It, it was it, like there was no lack when we were in high school. You know, in public school. Um, so now we get not. And, and, and I do want to say this. He talked about his sister, and, and he's an attorney. His sister's a doctor, right? So that talks about the importance of parents. So I want to touch that right quick because that's, that's that especially in black and brown community, it's the importance of a Mr. Breelove and Mrs. Breelove that has a son as an attorney that has his own law firm and has a daughter that's a doctor. I remember we was trying to go to the Miami Heat game to stay at his sister house because she lived like down in, you know, in the area. But she was because she was going doing doctor work like pro bono in like another country or something like that. To do things like that in our community, you have to have amazing parents. So I just want to shout your parents. I love your parents anyway. Me and your, your father just killed me in golf all the time. Houston Breelove's in the house today. He's in the house today. Mr. Breelove killed me. Listen, if y'all see Mr. Breelove on the golf course, you're not going to miss him. He's 6'8", so you're not going to miss him. But another thing is he's going to take every dime in your pocket. The man is unbelievable. I'm surprised he didn't play golf. He was just too tall back then. But I'm sure he could have been Tiger Woods before Tiger Woods existed. That's how cold he is in golf. But I just wanted to shout your parents out, man, because they, I mean, they was like our parents. We'd go by his house and be in his refrigerator like we was at our house. You know what I'm saying? So it, it, it takes a village, and we actually had that village growing up. So I, I wish the youngsters was able to have something like that. You know what I'm saying? So now you're in, you in law school, man. You're in Emory Law School. One of your friends who went to Tallah uh, school in Tallahassee, Florida, A&M, used to come drive to Tallahassee. Him and his friend Rico Love used to drive to Tallahassee and sleep on your floor in Atlanta while you was in uh, Emory Law School. I'm talking about me in case y'all didn't know who I was talking about. I used to drive up from Tallahassee to come hang out with him in uh, Atlanta when he was in law school. And we used to go do everything under the sun that you would do when you were in college. You know what I'm saying? But we'll drive back because my classes didn't start till Monday afternoon. So Monday morning, he in school. I'm driving him back on the road to get back to class in Tallahassee the next, the next Monday morning, man. But let's talk about law school, man. It was treacherous, man. It was, it was, it was I mean, I would come stay at his house and he wouldn't even be there. I just have a key. That's how, much, that's how into it he was, man. So let's talk about law school. Yeah, it, it was a challenge. Um, you know, first of all, where I went to college prepared me for it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, where I went to undergrad, I did my undergrad at Fisk University in Nashville, HBCU, um, which a place that changed my life. Like, yeah. For real. Like, you know, growing up in Milwaukee would definitely shape who I am um, in terms of trials and tribulations and, and everything positive I got from living here. Um, but Fisk really changed my life in terms of turning me into a, a man and turning me into 
a soon-to-be professional. And so I'm sure we'll talk about that in a moment. But in terms of law school, um, you know, it was it was nerve it was nerve-wracking. It was scary at first because Emory Law School um, in Atlanta is predominantly white school, um, and you know, I grew up in Milwaukee, mm-hmm. north side of black. Milwaukee. Yep. Yep. You know what I mean? Went to HBCU. Yep. And so my, I was limited in terms of my interactions with white people or people that weren't black were, were somewhat limited. Right. Um, through sports and somewhat in high school, we had some people in high school that, were, um, that weren't black. But um, it was the first time where I was a, around majority white mm-hmm. people. And thing about law school is you think you're smart in high school you think mm-hmm. you're smart in college, college yeah you get to law school everybody was the smartest person in their high school everyone right. was the one of the smartest people in their college everyone was a had a high gpa and was you know phi beta kappa and all that stuff so you know you walk in there with your chest out thinking hey I'm, you know, i did all this in college and high school and then you know you're, you're surrounded by all these other brilliant people and I remember my first class I went to, I forgot the class it was, it may have been like constitutional law or something like that, one of the first year classes. I mean, the first class I went to, I walk in, I'm ready to go, you know, I'm focused, I got mm-hmm. my notepad, my pens, you know, extra pens as a case one yeah. ran out, because I can take notes. And I walk into class and, you know, uh, when I went to Fisk undergrad, it was a small school, so mm-hmm. the average class might have 20, 25 students, a lot of them were less than that. I walk in this um, hall with like a hundred some odd students in one class, and literally everyone in the class had a laptop. Mm-hmm. And this is 2000, this is 2000, mm-hmm. the fall of 2000. And so I didn't even own a laptop. Word. You know, I didn't even own, a, I didn't even own a computer in college. Yeah. I used to use my roommate's computer. Right. Or go to the computer lab. And so I was like, uh-oh. I remember I went home after class that day. I called my mother. I said, Mom, I don't know if I'll be able to make it because people on these laptops and they're typing really fast. I could barely even type that well. Word. Because I never really used computers Jesus. like that. Right. And, you know, we worked it out and, you know, we got together and she got me a laptop. But it was one of those eye-opening moments, like this is a new environment, mm-hmm. you know. And so, you know, what I always tell people, when I t- especially when I talk to young people, I tell them, man, you know, don't be scared of being, put yourself in a situation where you're uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was a situation where I went from being comfortable in one environment at Fisk to being uncomfortable in another environment. And I had to, I had to make that transition in order to, to make it there. Because, mm-hmm. man, law school, especially at a top 25 law school that, that Emory is, you know, man, it's, it's dog-eat-dog, and it's super competitive. Mm-hmm. And, man, people steal your notes and, you know, won't help you, you know, study and, you know, steal books out the library. I mean, I didn't do those things, but that's how it is because mm-hmm. um, it's super competitive. And so it was just an environment where I had to just make that transition. And But that, but that, that, that moment, I always remember that moment as a time I had to kind of take a deep breath and say, you're going to do this. Mm-hmm. You're gonna, it's going to be different. It's going to be just different challenges. Um, but, you know, you're going to be good. So, And after, after the first year, you kind of settle in and you realize that, you belong there, and uh, that's what fortunately I was able to do. Absolutely, man. Um, I always remember <clears throat> when you graduated from law school. You know, I'm gonna skip to the fun part. I didn't go to class with him none. And he graduated from college, uh, law school. All of us, all his partners, his partners from uh, from the mill, like me and Bio was there. Then you have like 
yeah, uh, all our partners over at, at, in college that went to college with you, like B Dazzle and, you know, those cats. And then uh, we, we, we all, they had, at the time, they had the Shark Bar. Is that where we went? The Shark, shark, the shark bar. bar in Atlanta before they tore it down. And that's where they had the dinner at, man. And um, we all in there having a good time. And one thing about the Bree Love family, they have a, a legacy, a legacy of wine, right, where the family makes wine. So I think, if I'm not mistaken, we was drinking wine, drinking the wine Mr. Bree Love made, right? We, we, we was like addicted to his wine, right? It was crazy. And now, mind you, most African American people aren't introduced to wine to they, you know, professionals. But because his, his family made it, we would taste, you know, drink the wine. So he had some. We we had some. We I'm calling it Mr. Brillo's wine right now because this is the time in life where the name has gotten changed to Mr. Brillo's wine. To you know, you know, black folks got to make everything cool to Brillove. We changed Mr. Brillo's wine to Brillove. Around his graduation that we was all hanging out. I think it might have been B. Dazzle who said Braylo. I can't remember who said it, but what it showed you was we had a community. When one of us made it, we all felt like we made it. None of us was lawyers. I'm a songwriter, producer, you know, everybody a professional is doing their own thing. But we had one lawyer in the clique. So if anybody in the clique Needed a question, they got to do something with law. We was on, we was burning Brie Love phone up. And now, mind you, he was our lawyer before he was a real lawyer, by the way, in case y'all didn't know. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, he was the, right, and I was, I was saying, mind you, I didn't have no placements. I was teaching high school. I was broke. This was my attorney, though. I had my lawyer already before I even got to the music industry, right? Asking me questions like, bro, I haven't, I haven't, stern, I haven't learned that yet. <laughs> right, you know what I'm saying? I'm still so, in school, I haven't learned that yet. <laughs> right. I'll but, get back with you next semester. That, that shows you the power of community, the reason why I'm telling y'all that is because when you rock with people, when, when it's your people and you rock with people, they can help elevate you in other areas later on down in life. Bree Love was my attorney before I could afford an attorney or before he was an attorney. So when there was an opportunity for him to be an attorney for the situations I had, I know who to call right out the gate. So that's the reason why I'm, I'm walking through, through this is because your net network can help determine your net worth if you have the right network of individuals. You know what I'm saying? And you can have fun with these people, but then if these are brilliant people, the best example of that is LeBron James. His network, he had a bunch of brilliant friends. He didn't have people that were just trying to get money from him. He had people that had positions and wanted to learn and be something in those positions. So we got to learn from that, and I'm speaking more to the younger demographic as well, is that we got to learn from that, that your network is important because you never know when. Mario used to do free stuff for me when I couldn't afford an attorney, but the moment I had the opportunity for us to make money together, I went straight back to him to, because all the times he did stuff for free, now he's going to make a big chunk of money because of the things he did in the past. And that's how you, we're supposed to be. That's what every other community does. Every other community. Every other community. I heard a story of a Jewish community. One gentleman sold diamonds, another gentleman sold fur coats. It was uh, the gentleman that sold fur coats' wife's birthday. He went to his friend who was the jeweler and got her a diamond ring. For Christmas, the guy who, served fur, uh, who, sold, who sold diamonds forgot to get his wife something for, for Christmas. He went right, mind you, he went and got the diamonds for free. He went right over to the fur coat man and got a full-length mink for his wife for Christmas because he forgot a gift. Neither one of them paid each other. It was the community. That happens all the time. We just can't seem to do it in our community. So we got to lock in on that. 
it's not moving forward, man. Now you an attorney at law. You had Troutman and Sanders. I remember coming to your part, yo. Uh, I thought I thought we made it, y'all. I come visit him at the law firm. I, I got. I'm dressed like this, going into a law firm. A t-shirt, white t-shirt, some jeans. I come uh, visit him. Uh, the 30. It was. I don't know what floor it was high up. So I thought we we did we the Jeffersons, y'all. We out here. I'm about to go to my man. Hey man, I'm hit y'all back. I'm in my man uh, office, man. The law firm. I'll call y'all back. You want to sound slick? You know how it go. I come check him out and try me clean as the board of health, fresh suit on. Tailor made, and how was that experience, man? What made you say this is cool? I'm learning my ropes, but then eventually I got to slide. So how was that? Yeah, you know, going back to Emory, you know, when you go to these like a top ranked law school, which I was fortunate enough to go to, a lot of the what they try to indoctrinate in you is that they try to get you to go to these law firms, work at these law firms. Other people take different paths to go into public interest law or um, work for the public sector, like DA's offices, attorney general's offices, things of that nature. But they largely push you to go to these private, large, what we call white shoe law firms, kind of traditional law firm you see on TV with a bunch of lawyers and people running around. And um, the reason they do that is um, the law school rankings, mm -hmm. part, of the, part of the category that law schools get ranked on is incoming salary when you get out of school, mm. right? And so the law firms would pay $100,000, $120,000 for a brand new lawyer that knows nothing out of school mm -hmm. um, because of their model, right? And so um, they kind of push you toward that. And so I made that decision partly because I never had any money in my life, Word. for real. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, because that's kind of where the school, the school was push you. And so, you know, I did a summer internship at that particular firm. And I enjoyed it. It was a pretty good environment, you know, majority white, you know, law firm, but mm -hmm. a good environment. I thought I'd be supported there. Um, and so that's why I made the decision to go there. Um, and I, for, for the most part, I excelled. You know, I was there for about four years um, and excelled, um, you know, had a six-figure salary at 25. Mm -hmm. um, Built a house coming, from the ground up. Yeah, I mean, coming from, you know, living on 53rd and Lisbon um, to, you know, making $100,000 a year at 25 years old living in Atlanta, it was definitely, you know, it was like a dream, you know, it was, right, it was like a dream. And so, um, but it was also work and it was also a lot of dedication that went into it. But, you know, as the years passed when I was there and I got into my late 20s, um, you know, I looked around that law firm and there were a few people that looked like me um, mostly, most people didn't look like me, but none of those people I looked at and said, I want to be that person in five years. Mm -hmm. I want to still be coming in here working 60, 70 hour weeks in 10 years. I want to be the lawyer that misses my son's mm -hmm. basketball game or my daughter's piano recital because I had to work on in the middle of the night. Um, and so I said, I, I just wanted something different for myself. And the main thing I wanted was I wanted to control my own destiny because mm -hmm. um, I could see that the people at that law firm, although they embrace you and they're, co and they're cordial and they're professional, um, they have the law firm's best interest in heart, not right. yours. Absolutely. Um, you're just an employee, mm -hmm. you know, a fancy, well-educated employee, mm -hmm. but an employee nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I realized that and, and I internalized that. And, you know, very early on, I started a plan in my head that, you know, one day I was going to work for myself and practice law for myself. 
um, because law is one of those things where you don't need a whole lot of resources mm-hmm. to do it. All you need is this mm-hmm. and get some clients and start rolling. And so, um, you know, I, I started maybe two years in, I had already formulated that plan in my head that someday I was going to leave the firm and, and, and transition my way into my own practice. And so I did that after about four years, four or five years I was there, and I, and I started my own practice. Um, I worked at a smaller firm for about less than a year, um, trying to get my feet wet to see how a small firm kind of mm-hmm. operates. Um, but I always, it was, I was always my goal to have my own practice, but I started that in uh, 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, I started my own practice and, you know, um, it, I, had a, I started off this little small, little 500 square foot office. I had like a desk, a small table, and in the other room I had a table and a computer for a, a secretary that I couldn't even afford yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so no one actually sat there. I would just walk back and forth to each room. <laughs> Being the secretary in this room, I'd walk back to my office and be on the phone. And so, and then uh, I just kind of built it up from there. I mean, I started with, I had an assistant, worked 10 hours a week mm-hmm. um, just to help me organize files. And, um, and we just kind of incrementally grew. Um, and, you know, I just took information from different mentors and different people that had their own practices and try to incorporate things that they did into what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we've been, we've been rolling, man. Now I got a, a lawyer that works for me. I got a paralegal. I got a secretary. I got a group of network of other attorneys that I pay to do things for me. And so got my own large office. And so it, it's, it, it's a grind though. It didn't, mm-hmm. it didn't happen overnight, which I, when I talk to young people, I try to impart that on them, that things aren't instant, notwithstanding the instant stuff that's on your phone. Right. Um, so it was a grind and I did it slowly and, and gradually, um, you know, and, 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 and the, the most thing I'm proud of is I'm in a position where the things that I've done and the, the clientele and the clients I've developed and the relationships I've made, I'm able to f- help other people feed their families. Mm-hmm. You know, I can see my, my, my associate attorney, like, you know, being able to take her family on a vacation, mm-hmm. you know, f- f- from what we've built. And so to see other people be able to achieve their dreams um, through things that I've been able to, to sacrifice and focus on, man, it's, it's a great thing because there are people that did the same thing for me and I wouldn't right. be here if it wasn't for those individuals. So uh, I might've got too far ahead. I love it. No, 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 you, you perfect. Um, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's a lot of my story in terms of making that decision. People thought I was crazy when I left that firm, man. It was one of the top firms in Atlanta. I was in my late twenties, you know, they, they liked me, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't, you know, they weren't going to fire me anytime soon. Right. Uh, people thought I was crazy. Like you making, you know, you know, it's two, this is 2006, 2007, you making $130,000 a year in your late twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, why are you going to lead a white man? Right. <laughs> he good to you. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Why are you gonna master good to you? Right, stay there. <laughs> right, but it, it, what people don't you understand. in the big house. Right, what people don't you understand in is in the big house. Right, and what people don't understand is it's nothing like having ownership, bro. Regardless of who, if you'd work for a black law firm, you you didn't own it. So at the end right. of the day, you was an employee, and that's what people don't understand. And everybody now is is right now is cool to be entrepreneur. 
when we were trying to be entrepreneurs, it wasn't the cool thing to do, for the record. When I started my production company, my studio with John, it wasn't the cool thing to do. They thought we were crazy, so I can only imagine, and we wasn't making six figures. I was making 27500 as a teacher, by the way. Peanuts. You hear what I'm saying? When you were going through that, Chad, how many people told you, bro, you, you a brilliant mathematician, right. engineer. Right. Be a arc, be a, go be an engineer, bi, bi, you know, yeah. bio engineer or yeah, something yeah. like that. Right. You know, why right. don't you go do that? Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Why are you gonna do this music thing? Who exactly. makes money in music? If, exactly. You know what I mean? I know so many people probably told you. One hundred percent. Like, be a chemical engineer or yep. biomechanical engineer. Yeah. Or, you know, you can make good money and the difference work for is, a company and get stock options and benefits. And, right. The difference is though is some people are risk takers. Some people are comfort zone livers. And the most dangerous place to be for anybody, I don't care your color, I don't care your religion, your sexual orientation, is being comfortable. Because that is the dangerous place. And the reason why is the wealthiest place in the world. Somebody gonna say Dubai. Somebody gonna say this, somebody gonna say, the wealthiest place in the world is the graveyard. Because it was so many comfortable people, so comfortable that they never chased the dreams. And it's hundreds of billions of dollars, even trillions of dollars of dreams in the graveyard because people never tried to fail. We were people who didn't give a about failing. I don't care about losing to this day. And people who know me know that. So I want to make sure that those who are tuned in watching us live, those who are listening to us via podcast, you can never be successful if you, have, if you are, have fear of losing. I'm going to bet everything on me and some of my partners. Him, yeah, some of them I ain't going to bet a dime on because I know how they get out. But you, you know who those partners are. So make sure y'all taking what Mario's saying, man, that he bet on him even when he was comfortable. And a lot of times we will be in those positions of employment and be comfortable, we think, but it's not, you're not really getting... I have a saying, and this is what we say when we negotiate deals. You don't get what you deserve or what you earn. You get what you negotiate. We've closed deals. In, in the last three years, we closed over $3 million in deals in, in the last three years, me and him. Two black boys from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I grew up on 16th and Capitol. He told y'all where he grew up. We've, in the last three years, we've done $3 million in deals. We've changed people's lives. We just added to our income because we already had money, but we changed other people's lives. You see what I'm saying? So it's, it took two risk takers, two people who don't care about losing, to create opportunities for other people. So let's talk about your, 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 your law, your practice, man. You had some cases, man. I remember a case, and I thought I was tripping, y'all. I'm reading this online. I'm like, Mario Bree loves such and such. Jeezy, Kinky B, blah, blah, blah. I said, no, ain't no way. Because I just talked to him. He ain't said nothing to me about it. But when you're a lawyer, you can't talk about the cases. <laughs> so I'm like, say, bro, I just seen your name in the paper, something with Jeezy in it. I can't talk about it. All I knew was that was him. For him to say, I can't talk about it, I knew that was him. So you, had, you did a case with Jeezy and Kinky B. Yeah, we sued Jeezy for about $5 million um, basically his former business partner um, that felt like he was owed a significant amount of money. And um, 
So that case lasted many years. It actually went all the way to trial. And, you know, we had a good case, good evidence um, that, that you know, we thought we had a good case, good evidence that Jeezy had, you know, kept money that should also went to his business partner. Um, and we had a jury trial, thought we tried a good case, and the jury did not rule in our favor. And to this day, twofold, it was the most devastating moment in my professional career, but it was also the, one of the best things that happened in my professional career. And why is that? Um, first of all, the fact that I had the, the fortitude to take him all the way to trial, a mm -hmm. lot of lawyers wouldn't have done it. Um, but I didn't care because, once again, the whole risk-taking thing, yeah. you know, can't lose what you don't have. Facts. And so I was, I was very young in my practice. I was probably only had only been practicing on my own for about five years, been, probably been a lawyer for less than ten. Um, and I'm taking one of, the, one of the biggest artists in the country, you know, to trial mm -hmm. by myself. Um, he had like four or five lawyers. It was just me, and I got one other lawyer to help me out last minute just to help me really just – um, with the paperwork. Mm -hmm. you know? And so we tried it, man. We tried it in front of a jury for a week um, and it didn't work out. The jury just didn't rule in our favor. I was very surprised. Even Jeezy's lawyers were surprised. Um, but it was devastating. But then again, it may put me in a situation where there's no case, mm -hmm. there's no contract, there's no deal. There's no negotiation that I'll ever be uncomfortable in again. Because mm -hmm. um, I swung for the fences. Mm -hmm. And, what, you know, what else is there to do? Exactly. Know? And so um, it, was, it was the best thing that happened to me professionally. Um, number one, it, people knew me. You know, it, it, was, it, it was notoriety. Right. You know, the fact that I would do it. And I've gotten a lot of other stuff like that since then. Um, but I'm glad you bring it up because, you know, people, you know, social media and all that, it, it promulgates this idea that everyone's winning, everyone's on top of their game, mm -hmm. everything works out, everything's going good, but man, everything doesn't always work out. Facts. You know, most people consider me a, a success story, but that was an unsuccessful moment where I failed. Right. And I was devastated. I didn't leave the house for like two weeks. I didn't, I was, I was like, I don't even know if I want to practice law anymore. Mm -hmm. um, because I felt like I, I put four or five years into this case and I, and I tried the hell out of it, and it didn't work out. And so, um, but it's one of those things where growing up in the north side of Milwaukee, mm -hmm. going to LeVon Way Boys and Girls Club, playing basketball in high school, going to an HBCU, all those things slowly teach you and slowly develop you to be able to handle that situation. Right. And say, Man, I didn't. I didn't been on a basketball court when someone started shooting, and I had to run for my life. Right. I done, you know, uh, lost a state championship game, and, and when every single person I know in the world is watching me on TV crying, right. after We won a lost a state championship game. Right. I've, you know, I've I've gone through, you know, growing up in a household we were we didn't have a lot of money, and we were on welfare at a period of time, you know. So, this is just a lawsuit. Right. This is just a case, and I'm gonna move on. I'm gonna wake up the next day. And I'm going to go back to my office and keep grinding away. And right. so, you know, you learn more from the losses and the, and than you do from the wins most of the time. Right. Um, so I'm glad you asked me about that. Yeah, for sure, bro. I thought it was important to bring up, man, because I thought you was crazy, too. I ain't going to lie. I'm on my own like, man, it's, you know, in the hood, if, if, it's, if you're fighting and it's two of y'all, 
and it's five of them, hit who you can and run. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, the, the math ain't mathing, as they say nowadays. So that's why I want to bring that up, and I want you to make that point, because when you put in all that hard work and it don't work out your way, and, it, and that, that applies in the studio with all the artists that's out here watching. You do 400 songs, you got a catalog of 400 songs, ain't still, ain't still don't have a number one record. But what you fail to realize is it's millions of other artists who do not have a number one record as well. So it's not just you. But the difference is who gonna be consistent enough to at least hit, break the top 40. Because you're making money if you're breaking the top 40. Believe that. So it's about consistency. We don't quit just because we didn't win at the end of the day. Risk takers. That's, that's, what, that's what I want you to understand that. So now let's get into the art of negotiation, man. What are some things you look at when you start the negotiation process, let's say for an artist or for a client? Yeah, what I look at first is leverage. Yes. You know, that's the first thing that comes to my mind is leverage. Understand who has the leverage in that situation, mm -hmm. um, whether it's a, a contract with an artist um, that might be negotiating against like a recording company or a publishing company. The recording, recording company, the publishing company, they're the bank. Yeah, you know, you're the artist. You're trying to get something from them in exchange. They want to exploit your services to make them money, right? Right. And so it's the balance for understanding who has the leverage. If I'm, you know, in the middle of a lawsuit or some type of dispute, you know, I look at the facts of the case and say, well, these facts are in my client's favor. These facts aren't in their favor. Um, how do I weigh that? And then what leverage do I have to say this is kind of the settlement we want? You know, if everything's not in your client's favor, mm -hmm. facts that you can't control, you're not going to ask for everything in the world right. because you don't have the leverage. And so understanding your leverage is, is the first thing, you know, I would say. You know, obviously as a new artist, mm -hmm. you don't have a lot of leverage when you're trying to get a deal. Right. Um, it's a little different now with yeah. the social media piece right. because new artists can develop uh, a profile digitally online. Mm -hmm. Um, that can give them more leverage, especially if they got music out there. Mm -hmm. um, but generally, they do not. And so mm -hmm. there's certain things that you can negotiate. There's certain things that are just going to be what they are. Facts. You know, um, Facts. these 360 deals and all that, that's kind of what they are now. You, right. There's points you can negotiate, but oftentimes you're going to have to take it. Um, and then maybe just try to negotiate a higher advance, a shorter length of the deal, you know, to try to offset what you're not going to be able to change. Right. So accept what you're not going to be able to get mm -hmm. out of the other party mm -hmm. and then focus on the things you can, you can change. And so the other thing I would say is patience. And we talked about that mm -hmm. before the show is patience. Um, when a party wants to put you in an agreement that's maybe not in your best interest, they always want to do it really fast. Yep. You know, I call it like the vacuum cleaner salesman pitch. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? They show you the vacuum, they clean up, then they put that paperwork in front of you um, to you to sign it and buy a $1,000 vacuum where you can just go to Walmart and get a $50 one that does the, the same, same thing. Yep. Oh, or the uh, 51 been on vacation, right? Yeah, oh my God. On the timeshares. Oh, man. Right, the time. They right. want to give you everything to do a timeshare. Right? It's like the timeshare people. Right. You know, they show you this and that. You can this and your, your aunt can come this month and your uncle can come the next month. And they try to get that paperwork in front of you. They don't want you to read it. Right. You know, because they want you to sign you up for something that they know is a horrible deal. Every time. The whole timeshare thing is a horrible concept. <laughs> in general. In general, yeah. <laughs> so they want you to sign up and they give you the, you know, the free breakfast and mm -hmm. take you out on a little boat ride and, and then they put the paperwork <laughs> in front of you, right? And so um, 
fortunately, I've never signed one of these. I probably yeah. sound like I have signed one, but I have never. Um, uh, and so it's the same thing. But what's the, what's the common denominator? Mm-hmm. They always want you to sign fast. fast. Yep. Right. Here's fifty thousand. Here's twenty thousand dollars. Here's fifty thousand dollars. And listen, if you're dealing with someone that's never seen that kind of money, I mean, you might be dealing with someone that might be working at McDonald's and in right. the studio working on their music, and then someone comes along and says, "Man, here, sign this. I'll give you fifty thousand dollars today." They going, man? What? What? Lawyer who? Lawyer what? You know what I'm saying? Patience. 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 Okay. How am I benefiting from this? How can this be changed? Let me talk to a lawyer. Let them look at it. What are their thoughts? Right. What can I push back on? What can I? What do I need to accept? So mm-hmm. patience is huge. Yeah. Any any negotiation. Um, yeah, I got this case right now um, representing a, a woman. Um, I'm friends with her fiance, and she went through a really bad experience at a at a hospital in Atlanta mm-hmm. during childbirth. Basically, an anesthesiologist refused her service mm-hmm. um, to give her epidural, Epi- right? Yeah. And it was a whole little thing. And they went back and forth. They were th- supposed to get another anesthesiologist, but the anesthesiologist never came. And the woman had like a really mm-hmm. tough delivery mm-hmm. with no epidural. And so, um, so we're going after this particular hospital. And, you know, I'm negotiating with a claims person at the hospital. And they're just like, Oh, just get back with me next week. And they, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's always like he's yeah, always yeah, too yeah. busy yeah, and all yeah. that. But what he's trying to, it's a tactic. Yeah, right? exactly. What he's trying, trying to, to do you is to see how impatient I'm going yeah, to be. Yeah. To be like, okay, we made an initial offer. Yeah. They came back with a lower offer. And he's like, well, I'm going to be busy for the next week. So just call me like next Friday. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, I'll call you next Friday. That's fine. And I have another number for you, mm-hmm. you know, but what he wants me to do is be on the phone. Like, okay, we'll take it. We'll take it. Right. Let's get it done right, right. now. And, you know, fortunately, I have a patient client. Mm-hmm. When I'm telling them this, this is all a negotiation tactic, tactic. right? to stall the other party out or mm-hmm. to rush them. You know, mm-hmm. rush them in or make them feel like they need to rush into a deal right. or to stall them out so they just give up and take what you've given them. Right. And so patience is, is, a, is a huge one. Is, mm-hmm. a, is a huge one. So those are the two of the things that, you know, I would say uh, are most important in any type of negotiation. I've yep. been in mediations, um, you know, in just different disputes where, man, we might, mediation might be two days long. Mm-hmm. Back and forth, offer, rejection, offer, rejection, counter offer, back and forth for, for hours and hours. You know, and but sometimes it takes that patience, it takes that persistence to get your client the most you can get them in that situation. Absolutely. Um, but sometimes you just deal with an impatient client, and they're just like, Nothing you can I, do. I want to get this over with. Right. Just, you know, so yeah, I, I never, I'll give I'll give them that money. Yeah. I'll take that money. Yeah. And then that's not, you know, sometimes you can't control that. Ultimately, the client's your boss. Yeah, you of course. You got to do what they they want you to do. Only thing you can do is make recommendations, but. Um, those are the two main things I kind of, you know, I kind of focus on when I thought about that topic. Mm-hmm. Also, so let's we, we talked about uh, contracts. So let's, let's we got a lot of music people here, so let's 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 break down. We you, we just you said the word three sixty. In the three sixty deal, there's a clause in your contract. It's the ancillary clause. Am I correct, Mario? That's correct. The ancillary clause. That's the three sixty in your contract. I I've seen a bunch of them, so that's why I know. Um, and in that ancillary clause, it normally comes as a percentage, correct? Correct. Percentage of anything you do in the inter- entertainment industry. 
Right. Even clothing line. If you get a clothing line, they get a taste of that. It's, that's under the merchandising part, but it's in there as well. So that part of your, that clause in your contract is what makes it 360, just so y'all know. So when you're doing these contracts with record companies or production companies or things of that nature, really make sure you focus on the master part of it, which depends on how big the company is, you ain't gonna, you're not gonna be able to negotiate any that part anyway, right. or, and I should say, and the ancillary part, because you gotta understand if you're signing to a production company, and there's an ancillary, there's still gonna be an ancillary to the major company that you go to next. So if you sign to Homeboy Records, that's a big record, a big independent company. They, they got big artists, but they're not the actual made. They're not uh, Sony or Universal. They're not one of the big junk, Warner, you know what I'm saying, that umbrella. Then they're, even no matter how big they are as a label, they're still not the actual label because they have some kind of uh, joint venture with a, a major. Whatever you give them, they will tell you they'll change it when it's time to negotiate with the major, but they ain't got to. Just want you to understand that. So the goal is to get that number, the ancillary, as small as possible from the beginning. Because time, 10 times out of 10, they're not going to change it, no matter what they tell you. I'm telling you that now. We had it. We experienced that before, negotiating. So understand that that's an important part of everybody's contract as, a, as you're signing your intellectual property, your IP over to somebody. That the ancillary piece of that is as low as you can get it. Most average, 90% of the time, it's going to be 20 to 25%. They're going to try you right there every and time. A new artist. Yeah, they're going to try you at 20, 25%. Unless you're a new artist that got a hit record, then you might slide with a 10 or a 7.5 or something like that, which yeah. I'm cool with that, right? But you got to realize when you book a show in Houston, Texas for 25000 you got to think about this. Let's just use 20000 to make it easy. Or let's use 100 to make it easy. Right? Because it's easy for people to use 100. So at 100,000, you owe your manager 20%. So 20,000 gone, you owe, that's 80, right? This is just a show, right? So before you leave your house, you're making 80,000. Then you got to pay your ancillary. If that's 20%, that's another 20,000 gone. So now you went from 100 down to 60. So before you even step out your car, the house to, to go to the car service, to go to the airport, you're at 60K. Now you got travel expenses in that, that, that booking. So let's say your travel expenses might cost you 3000 So now you're down to 57000 Now mind you, we ought to take 57000 go do an hour show. I ain't saying it like that. But what if you can get your ancillary to seven? What if you can negotiate your manager, if he ain't good like me, to 15 or 10? I'm, I'm 20 all day. I ain't, I ain't, I ain't budging. But what if, you can, what if you can negotiate your manager down, though? So now you might be... 22 into it as opposed to 40. And at 57, you got security. You got security. You know, you might have to pay a, a promoter. You got to eat you on the road. You got, you got per diem. And then there's the IRS. Yes. So that 57, so, that 57 with the so you, 55. So you, hear these, you hear these artists talk about, I make 100 a show, I make 50 a show. Right. Bro, you make 10. Right. After you pay everyone and pay the IRS and pay your taxes, if you pay taxes. Right. Um, if you're smart enough to pay taxes. smart enough to pay taxes. Right. You know, that 100 turns into 25. Quick. You know, quick. 
And so, <laughs> so, so that's why uh, the ancillary is but extremely that important. That sound good in a rap song. Right. It don't sound good so they can buy a hundred <laughs> show. Right. So you got to realize these things when you're negotiating your contract. And then when you're negotiating your, if you sign to a production company, you're negotiating your upstream, right? That's when you go from your label, Homeboy Records, to Homeboy Records slash Universal. Right? You see that? Young Money slash uh, what's cash money, right? Slash universal. That's three slashes. That's three fees. Once every slash is a, is, a, is a percent. Don't think it's just one and done. It's not basketball. You couldn't check every single, you couldn't a percentage every single slash. So keep that in your mind, right? So Lil, Lil Wayne didn't put Nikki and Drake out there because he thought they were nice people. No. Because he, he gets a percentage. Probably to this day, he probably gets oh, a percentage 100%. of what they make. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even though they probably renegotiated it at this point, but yeah, but he's still getting paid. He still got paid a lot, a whole lot. I wish I'd have got ten percent of everything they did, and I'm good. One percent, man. We man. So you got to think about it like that. So make sure you understand the the concept of negotiation. You don't get what you earn. You don't get what you deserve. You get what you negotiate. We negotiated with a record company for three months for a deal. But that number continued to rise the longer we waited. It continued to rise. Uh, say it again. The, 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 the overall deal number began to rise in our favor. The overall deal, overall, like the, how much they're going to spend on the album budget, how much, how much advance, how much uh, uh, they spend on, on marketing, all of those numbers start to climb as we waited and start to pick apart the contract. With a shorter commitment, which that's, is, that, that's which key. is equally as important as yes. anything, yes. is in these contracts, for the most part, you want the shortest commitment as possible. Because mm -hmm. what the labels and the publishing companies, they want to lock you in these five, six, seven-year deals and commitments where they control you, they control everything you, they control what you do, um, and then they can dictate what they pay you. Mm -hmm. You keep the agreements as short as possible, right. then after that short period of time lapses or is close to lapsing, then you're able to renegotiate, Yep. right? Because the label can drop you anytime they want anyways. Right. So it really doesn't matter if you have a short deal or not. Exactly. Because you have a 10-year deal or one-year deal, they can drop you after one year anyways. Exactly. And so it's not like, you know, the NBA or the, Major League Baseball Guaranteed. You sign a 10-year yeah. contract And if you get injured Or you're not playing well You still get paid Over those 10 years That's not how the music industry works That's not how these contracts work Exactly If they feel like you're not performing um, You're not going to You know Their accountants Feel mm -hmm. like They do the numbers And feel like you're not going to make them money You're gone anyways Exactly And so Keep the commitment as short as possible And that's now it's really a sticking point when, I, when we try to do these deals is keep it as short as possible. Um, and you made a good point, we were talking about this earlier, when you have a short commitment, the shorter the commitment, it puts the label and their, and their A&Rs and people that control the music side, it makes them have a sense of urgency. Yep. We have this amount of time to try to turn this artist into someone that's gonna make us money. Yep. We can't sit on them, we can't wait two years to put out an mm -hmm. album. We gotta start working on this now. Um, so much so, what songs they already got that we could use to shoot a video for right now? I had a client that had some songs that was recorded already 
And then we, we, we negotiated for a couple of weeks and did a deal. Before we were done negotiating, the first song, first couple singles were done and mixed and mastered and ready to go before we even were done with the deal. Because we got that time commitment down. Saying, you must upstream this artist in X amount of months or they get to, they thank you so much for the help, but we gone. So that's extremely important. That part is extremely important, the time commitment. Because it may, it's to think about this, you dating this significant other, whatever you date, they give you a time commitment. You got six weeks to, to, to woo me or whatever you want to call it. Or I'm going to, to see what's out, what else is out there. I promise you, if that was a part of dating, it'd be a lot more marriages, a lot faster. You know what I'm saying? I wouldn't have waited 10 years to marry my wife. My wife cold. She do everything right. Majority of the things great. You get what I'm saying? I, I still waited 10 years. What the hell was I waiting on? But I waited because I could. There was no time commitment there. You get what I'm saying? And whatever it is, if your time commitment is short, it's going to put the pressure on who, somebody. You feel what I'm saying? So think about it that exact same way. And when you're negotiating with these people, don't fan out over who you're negotiating with. That's the worst thing you could ever do. That's why people have bad deals. They're too busy, excited that this person would even consider dealing with them. Man, that person bleeds just like us. Somebody rapper said that. There you go. So at the end of the day, you deal, it's, it's, it's business at this point, no matter how cool we are or whatever. Now, there are people out there who do exactly what they say they're going to do. So don't, don't trip. We're not saying all people are bad. But there are people, there are, I've, ne I've worked with an artist, their first project, they did 10 songs, the label shot eight videos. That's not normal for a new artist. The second project, they did 12 songs, they shot seven videos. So they shot 15 videos in the first two projects. That's not normal. But that person that we negotiated with said, I'm gonna do whatever it takes to blow them up. And that, was, that person was a man of their word and stood on everything they said they was gonna do. That's rare, that's not normal. That is completely not normal. And when you work with people like that, you wanna, give, you wanna go above and beyond for them, those type of people, those type of companies. Because that's 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 a one, that's a ten percent chance of happening. All right, I just wanted I, wanted, I had to say that I won't say who and what, but I'm just saying when people when you run into people like that, and I'm speaking on it because that I, I I was a witness to that. When you work with people like that, you want to go hard for them because they definitely going hard for you. They believe in you. So listen, this has been an amazing. I appreciate y'all. This time flew. I didn't know it was so late. And uh, we, we passed our time. So um, what I want to do is I want to show love to Attorney Bree Love. Y'all show Attorney Bree Love some love for making this trip, man. Appreciate y'all. Appreciate y'all. And, and if y'all got, we got, we got a couple minutes afterwards. Y'all got a couple questions. Y'all can run up to him and holler at him. He cool. He from the mill, so he ain't scared of y'all. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> and I, and I, and I want to I wanna thank Chad sincerely for having me. And, you know, this has been a, a great opportunity for me to come home and do this, man. Milwaukee means a whole lot to me. And those are my friends and family that you may be watching and, and those that are here. 
um, know what this city means and mean what it and what it done for me. So, and I appreciate Chad for inviting me up here in the summer and not the winter. Because <laughs> I, I, I live in the South now, I don't do these Milwaukee winters anymore. So I appreciate you inviting me up here and scheduling this in the month of June, my brother. I know you would have told me no, brother. That's why if it wasn't a basket, he coming to the basketball game in the winter time, but he ain't coming up here to talk. But check this out, man. I want to thank everybody for coming. This is what I want you to do for those who came. It costs you zero dollars, right? So I want you to go see my brother Patrick. Patrick, hold your hand up. I want you to go see my brother Patrick right there with the, with the, with the black hat on and give him some what you got out of this. That's your payment for coming to this. Talk to my camera and tell us what you got out of this, all right? So we can continue these things. We know we helping the community. That was my goal. I don't make no money for this. He didn't get paid to come. So we here to help. That's what we're here for, period, all right? One thing about a dream, it never expires. Y'all be blessed. Thanks for listening. Peace. This is your boy, Chad C. No Roper, the creator and host of Amplifier Community Connection. Amplifier is a free artist development program powered by Radio Milwaukee. Each episode is filmed and recorded in front of a live studio audience at Radio Milwaukee Studios in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Stay connected with Amplifier by registering for our free events or watch us live on Facebook at AmpMKE. You can also follow us on Instagram at AmpMKE as well. Thank you for listening and remember, dreams never expire.